Yeah, it's very bad to steal Joe Bouswell. Hey, this is YD from the Hail Evangelist Show, and you're listening to the Podcast 99 Internet Radio Network. Hey, did I tell you guys yes. I got a goat? Yes. I cannot hit curveball. Straight ball, I hit it very much. Curveball. That's our friend. Vaughn into the windup in his first offering. Just a bit outside. He tried the corner and missed. Second of the day, a towering home run to right. And the Dodgers unloading on the D-backs. It is 9-1. Jack is knocked in four. Jesus. I like him very much. He no help. help. Trying to say Jesus Christ can't hit a curveball? Little column A, little column B. Yeah, baby! <laughs> Well, good morning, good evening, or good afternoon, wherever you are, whatever you do. A lot of things happening in the world today. Most of them are far beyond our control, you might say. So, perhaps it's time we took a pause and thought about life and thought about the laws of gravity, the Constitution, New York, Alexander Hamilton, George Clinton, Melanchthon Smith, and the verge of eternity. Don't touch that dial. Just try to hear me out for a while. The New York Convention delegates are slowly coming to several real, real, uh, realizations. Number one, New York may have waited too long to ratify. Secondly, to get what they want now from the Constitution requires that they're going to have to ratify it. And the threat of succession is very, very real. What else is new? Am I right? Here's how you get a hold of me. Text machine is area code 209-565-DAVE. That's 209-565-3283. The email, dave at thedavebowmanshow.com. And, of course, we're on the web. Just use your preferred non-denominational web search browser to take you to thedavebowmanshow.com. Ego Bebera Capulis at Olive Averve. I drink coffee that others might live. Well, it has been an interesting day. Realize... You know, there's there's times when you think you're going to do something, and then it goes out the window. Today was parent-teacher conference day, so this morning kind of got shot up. And then I thought, well, we'll just get back from that and, and do the show. And then the atomic pollen hit me again. <laughs> Good Lord. And it's supposed to be worse tomorrow. I mean, it, it was moderate today. Tomorrow it is supposed to be extreme, so <laughs> got that to look forward to. <laughs> Hooray me, right? Plus, it's opening day of baseball, so when I haven't been uh, here, I've been in front of my television or my radio listening to, to baseball all day. So it's it's like a holiday. It really is. It's a holiday for me. So when we left you last, the New York delegates had started to gather in New York City, where they were going to actually they didn't gather in New York City. They gathered in Poughkeepsie, which is upstream from New York City. Why did they choose Poughkeepsie? Well, there's some reasons for it. One, it was a little more centralized location for the urban areas and the the metro area. But more importantly, it was it was a victory by the anti-federalists to do it in Poughkeepsie. Poughkeepsie was the heart of anti-federalism in 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 New York. And so having it in Poughkeepsie kind of made it uh kind of made it 
seem like it was more uh, more favoring anti-federalism. In fact, it was the Poughkeepsie Country Journal and the Poughkeepsie Advertiser were the only papers in the country. They were the only newspaper in the country that ran all of what were known as the letters to a federal farmer. Now, the letters to a federal farmer were a, a series of, of anti-federalist bo- uh, letters, much like the Federalist Papers were actually letters to the New York Papers. The um, the letters to a federal farmer, and there were some others as well, but it's the letters to the federal farmer that are really the heart and soul, I guess, of the anti-federalist position. You can get them today in a book. I highly recommend it. It is a very, it's a very good read. They're They're well-written, and they are well-argued, and while... They will end up being on the losing side. That doesn't mean this is something that we've we've come to deal with in today's world. Just because one side or the other loses the debate doesn't mean that their ideas are wrong. And nowhere is that going to be more clear than in New York, where the Federalists are outnumbered heavily by the Anti-Federalists. Yet they go to the convention in Poughkeepsie and they begin the debate. Now, it's really in New York that the Federalist-Anti-Federalist divide is really, really becomes defined. Prior to this, there were people who were anti-ratification, but they weren't necessarily called anti-Federalists. It's here in New York in the spring and, and early summer of 1788 where those two phrases really begin to coalesce around the two positions. Of course, George Clinton, the governor of the state of New York, is a vehement anti Federalist. The problem, though, is that he does not actually fit into the mold of your typical anti-federalist, and so he's he's actually kind of seen with some suspicion. The problem is he has a residence in one place, and of course he lives in another place because he's the governor. Well, which one gets to elect him to the convention, or do they both get to elect him to the convention? And his presence at the convention is actually kind of somewhat disquieting. It creates some issues that we're not going to go into here, but they solved that by making him the president of the convention. So the president of the convention, as you know, generally speaking, doesn't vote unless there's a tie. The anti-federalists figure they have enough of an advantage in numbers that they're not going to need him when it gets to that vote. Now, to to further define this, your, your anti-federalists tend to believe in a state government. They, they want state sovereignty, as we've talked about on numerous occasions. They are concerned about a central government overwhelming the state governments. Moreover, they tend to come from the middle and lower, or as I prefer to put it, the rural class of the society. Now, this is important because this, this issue with George Clinton is that he is not by any means, middle or lower class. But his power base is, he has always appealed to the middle and lower classes, much to the disdain of the Shilers, uh, who, who Hamilton is married to the eldest daughter of. These are men like Patrick Henry, George Mason, George Clinton, as I said. These are the, the general leaders seen as anti-federalists, even if they weren't called that. Patrick Henry was not called that, nor was Mason. But Clinton is the guy for whom the term was invented. But the real anti-federalist of anti-federalists is this guy at the very bottom of the list, Melanchthon Smith. Melanchthon Smith is, he is one of the most fascinating persons in American history. He really is to me. I mean, he's, he's, uh, he's hard to find. 
you there are no that I can find there are no biographies of Melanchthon Smith. There are no there are no newspaper articles that that really tell you about his life and and what he did. We know what he did because it's all public record, but we don't know who he was. If we were to sit down and go, okay, who was Melanchthon Smith? What made him laugh? What made him cry? What did he like to eat? Where did he like to go? Those things are lost to us. We don't know. There's no there's no real uh there's no real definition of him, unfortunately. And that's problematic because for a historian, we like to get to know people. That's particularly me. That's that's always been my focus in history is I would much rather know the person than all that other stuff. I mean, the other stuff I can figure out. I want What I want to know is why they felt that way. And you get that by getting to know them. Well, with Melanchthon Smith, there just isn't anything really, really out there. I mean, there's a few books that deal with what he wrote. So you can go to Amazon and you can get uh, these books there. But, but But these are just his writings. These aren't necessarily... Anything about him, they might contain a short biography that's going to tell you that he was a leading anti-federalist in New York and so forth and so on. Uh, But as a general rule of thumb, you're not going to find much about him out there. And that's I think that's unfortunate, because, like I said, he is one of the most interesting people in American history. And more than that, the Federalists had great respect for him. They really did. The Federalist Hamilton and the likes of that, they have great regard for this man. They refer to him as one of the most most eloquent at times, most detailed speakers they've ever dealt with. And most importantly, what they really like about him is that he is not like Hamilton. He's not harsh. He doesn't like to insult people. Hamilton, for whatever reason, at the New York Convention, goes off the deep end insulting people. He... He just feels like it's his mission in life to be as sarcastic and caustic as possible. And he risks really alienating a lot of people because even though his position is admirably argued, he's not doing it in a way that is making people friends. Melanchthon Smith is exactly the opposite. Even though people disagree with his position, they so appreciate his 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 focus on an issue and his ability to speak shortly and precisely and simply really starts to to impress a lot of people. And in fact, within a few days, really within a few speeches, it becomes clear that Melanchthon Smith, who for many years was not considered to be the author of uh, the letters to the federal farmer, for many years people believed it was Richard Henry Lee, but computer research in the last probably five to ten years has really really indicated that it is most likely uh, Melanchthon Smith, which is, which is great. I'm okay with that. I, I'm cool with that. Uh, but he is, he is starting to win over people, but even he has got a problem. The Federalists, on the other hand, want a national government. And we've talked about this in the past. There, there are even moves, Hamilton is one of them, uh, along with Madison during the convention, that they would just as soon do away with state governments as as not have state governments, they don't really see the need for them. They are generally, in the history books that I was looking at yesterday, considered the wealthy class. I think that's an error. And and sometimes history books, again, they show their biases. And it isn't that they are wealthy, per se. 
it's that they are the mercantile class. They are the, the, the people that depend on mercantile issues rather than agricultural issues to make ends meet. And so the Federalists tend to be, again, in the, in the coastal cities and in the, in the big cities where, where mercantile events are taking place. Again, Alexander Hamilton is one of them. James Madison is one of them. But even George Washington, who is not necessarily a, 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 a urban dweller, he's close, but not, you know, not here. I mean, Mount Vernon is not exactly, in, in 1788, Mount Vernon is not anywhere near a city called Washington, D.C., because that doesn't exist yet. It's just a, it's just a swamp. But he leans towards a national government. He leans towards union more than anything else, because that's what's really going to draw people together. That's really what's going to make people come together. It's, it's Melanchthon Smith's speeches that counter Hamilton's causticness. I, Hamilton is really, I, I, again, if I were to be able to travel in history, maybe I'd want to go see this, but Hamilton really comes across as kind of a, kind of a jerk. I mean, he really does. He's basically telling the convention. His position can be summed up as follows. You don't have a choice. You have to ratify. So you need to you need to stop doing this. And, and if you don't ratify, here is the worst case possible scenario. What's going to happen? You're going to be responsible for a civil war if you don't ratify this. We are going to have to shoot at each other. It's going to be a disaster if you don't ratify this. And you have no choice. You have to ratify it. That's that's basically his position. Of course, this just offends a lot of people. A lot of people are like, what? Dude, you're not even listening to our arguments. You're not even hearing what we're saying. You're not even listening to our concerns. All you're doing is telling us that we're bad and that we're the people that are going to shoot at you because we disagree with you. We got a politician in the news right now who says that. It's 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 a little unnerving and it's a little disappointing. Because you don't really expect that from Hamilton, do you? I mean, sure, he's a brilliant mind. Sure, he's a great leader and all of those kinds of things. But he's kind of being a jerk here. And people don't like it. People are not happy with the way he's acting about this whole thing. And it's Melanchthon Smith who counters with these focused, simple country countryisms that that really oppose Hamilton and really mitigate what he's saying. And of course, the problem that the Federalists have, not only are they in Poughkeepsie, but they are outnumbered in the delegation. The the Anti-Federalists have a significant advantage. They have a significant majority in the New York delegation. And so for the first week or so of the convention, the big debate revolves around whether or not we should consider the entire Constitution or just a little or, or consider it piece by piece. What should we do? And they literally waste a week arguing about that. And then when they're done with that, then they move on to, well, maybe we should uh, maybe we should talk about amendments. Well, but we haven't decided if we're going to ratify or not, is Hamilton's argument. And then comes the argument from Clinton, who jumps into this thing. At that point, he jumps in with this we don't need to talk about ratification. This Who gave you guys the right to go down there and do this? From whence did you get your power, your authority to redefine the government of the United States anyway? Why are we talking about this? Why, why are we even doing this? And it's kind of a last-ditch attempt by Clinton to derail the whole process by, by saying it has no legitimacy. 
it doesn't matter what, what we decide here because this is not a legitimate way of doing it. You didn't have the right, you didn't have the authority to do this. That that argument is, I mean, most people today would be thrown off by that argument, but Hamilton's response to that is interesting. It's kind of a, look, it's a good question. We get it. We, we, we understand that, but it's not the point at issue. The point at issue is here, we're here to ratify this or not ratify this. Let's stop wasting time with who gave what permission to whom to do what. Let's get on with what we need to get on with. If we don't want to do it, then don't do it. But the problem is pretty clear, Hamilton outlines to them. Number one, the ground has changed. And this is important to understand. With 10 states already having ratified, the government of the United States is going to be formed. The United States of America is going to become a nation. Whether New York is a part of it or not. As the delegation looks at this, they realize that we may have waited too long. And if we hold out like New, like uh, like Rhode Island did during the convention, we won't have any say in what happens when Congress meets. We won't have any representation in this new government that's establishing new laws. We won't have any say in that. So we may have waited too long. We need Maybe we need to just go ahead and do this. Secondly, there's the issue of New York, New York City as opposed to New York. New York City is overwhelmingly in favor of the ratification of the Constitution, even though New York itself is not. This is not unusual. We've seen this before in South Carolina and places like that. But New York City lets it be known. The delegates from New York City let it be known, and they they don't do so openly. I mean, they're not making a big deal about it. But they've made it clear that if New York, the state, decides not to ratify the Constitution, they will then secede from New York State and apply for admission into the United States as their own separate state. Who knows? Maybe that would have been better anyway. This, the, the realization that Melanchthon Smith and the other anti-federalists have is, crap, they could really do that. Because if they did that, the United States would certainly go, hell yeah, we'll have you, come on in. We'd love that. Then the state of New York, now the sovereign republic of New York, would be isolated. It would have literally no access to the sea. They would have to go through the United States to use the port of New York, or they would have to go through the St. Lawrence River up in Canada to get to that side. And the problem they have there is that, again, because we haven't ratified this new government, because we haven't formed this new government, because we, as the United States, have not kept our agreement— in the Treaty of Paris, you got all those British forts sitting up there on the uh, on the frontier with Canada. They're actually in the United States. They're actually in New York. But now you're going to have to deal New York, the sovereign republic of New York, is going to have to deal with her Majesty, His Majesty's uh, empire of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. And the United States isn't going to be there to help you. So you might want to think about those issues. Those are things that are overwhelming, and the, the, the reality of it is, and Melanchthon Smith comes to this realization in about, I don't know, June or so, he comes to this realization that it really is no longer, it's really no longer an argument. We have to ratify. Not because of what Hamilton says, but because if we don't, we're going to be left out on our own. 
it's going to tear things apart if we don't. If we don't ratify this, economic and physical disasters are not an unlikely result of it if we don't. He comes to that conclusion and he comes to that position and he introduces a second idea, which is that, okay, what if we ratify this with a whole bunch of amendments that we recommend to it? And we'll put one big caveat in our ratification, which is that if if we don't get these amendments that we want, if we don't get these things that we want, we reserve the right to pull out of the union in five years or seven years or 10 years or whatever. We just, we reserve the right to go away. And at this point, George Clinton just absolutely unloads on Melanchthon Smith. He just absolutely tears into him. How dare you? You're a traitor to our cause. You're this, you're that. And you might think that that would uh, drive two men apart, wouldn't it? But remember, George Clinton goes on to become the vice president of the United States twice. And Melanchthon Smith is uh, one of his biggest supporters, one of his biggest campaigners, one of his biggest friends, as it were. Obviously, this disagreement did not drive two people apart like it would in some other periods in our history. Just goes to remind you, folks, I guess, as, as, as you, you think about this. The fact that somebody loses a debate or loses a vote doesn't mean that their ideas are necessarily wrong. It just means we went another better way. That's all it means in most cases. When he introduces this idea that they will do so with these amendments and this reservation, Hamilton stands and in what is reported to be his only real Pleasant and good speech and passionate speech, a speech that doesn't contain a lot of, of harping and a lot of insults and a lot of sarcasm. He pleads with the delegates. Congress is not going to accept a, a conditional ratification. We're either in or we're out. It's that simple. There's no middle ground here. We're in or we're out. If we don't get in, we will have no say when the first Congress meets and considers whether or not to start amending the Constitution. We will have no say in the laws that this nation passes. We won't even be part of the nation. Well, New York will, New York City will, but but New York won't. And you'll have to go off and form your own state, which, of course, now they're talking about doing anyway. Who's surprised? What goes around comes around, right? He closes his speech with an appeal that he believes so firmly in this, and so passionately in this, and so dedicatedly of this, that even if he were on the verge of eternity, he would still advocate for the Constitution to be ratified by his beloved state of New York. He wants this because he believes it's what's best for New York. It's what's best for the nation. He's not wrong. But it just goes to show that people who are brash and abrasive and annoying and Sure, maybe they get musicals named after them 200 and some odd years later, but, you know, musicals aren't exactly noted for being historically accurate. It just goes to show that even those people sometimes are right. And Hamilton was clearly right when he was talking about this idea that New York needs to ratify, that New York needs to be a part of this, that New York has to be in this. Because we're going to be one of the leading states. We're the fourth largest state already. We got the biggest port. We, they can't, we can't do without them. They can't do without us. 
We have to be a part of this. And the ground is shifting. It's going to happen. Ten states have ratified, including Virginia and Massachusetts. It's done. So join or die. That's what Franklin said all those years before, right? Join or die. We either become a part of this or we don't. And the New York delegation, over the strenuous objections of George Clinton and a few of the other anti-federalists who are really unhappy, votes to ratify the Constitution of the United States, and New York becomes the 11th state. I find it fascinating that two of the leading anti-federalists, George Clinton and Melanchthon Smith, will go on to serve both the nation and their state under the new form of government. Melanchthon Smith will be elected to the legislature of the state of New York, where he will deal with, you know, the issues that the state has to deal with in dealing with the national government, including that impost issue we were talking about last week. He will he will be a leader in all of that stuff. Still don't know anything about it. We don't even know what kind of tea he drank. We don't. I, I find that sad that we just don't know enough about him. He's a guy, you know, you play that game as a story. And if I could invite five people to dinner, who would I invite? Melanchthon Smith, I think, would be one of those guys. Because I'd, I'd like to know him. Not I, I know his positions. I can read those. I can read his letters that he wrote anonymously. I can read his speeches. New York is one of the few states that actually published all this. It's a 598-page volume. You can read the entirety of their convention. The whole thing. 598 pages of it. <laughs> I perused it. I didn't read the whole thing. But you can read it. But I'd like to know him. Because he wasn't wrong. And there's a lesson in, you know, okay, I lost an election. I lost a vote. I lost a way to, I lost a decision. But that doesn't mean that I'm bitter about it. Doesn't mean that I spend the rest of my life complaining about it. I go on and serve my country and my state in the best way I possibly can. And I think that's the mark of a true anti-federalist. They didn't, they didn't support the Constitution at first. But when the rubber read the road, they did. And that that says a lot to me. It really does. I'm uh, probably not going to be here tomorrow. It's supposed to, like I said, the pollen's supposed to be out of, out of control. I have a president constitution ready to go. If I feel like doing it, I'll, I'll, if I feel good enough to do it, I will. If not, I'm sorry. And then I'm out all next week. We are going to California uh, to see my folks. And so we will not be here next week. Take the time right now. Tell the people that matter in your life. You love them very much. You'd miss them if they weren't there. So don't pass up those opportunities. You don't want to have that regret. Plausibly Live, I'm Dave Bowman. This is my show, The Dave Bowman Show, right here on the Podcast 99 Internet Radio Network. You can download us at I will see you, if not tomorrow, in a week from uh, a week from Monday. All right, have a great day, everybody, and we will see you later. Dave Bowman Show is a Slippery Fish Entertainment production for the Podcast 99 Internet Radio Network. For more information or to complain about how the show offended you, the text or voicemail number is 209-565-DAVE. For more information about the show, log on to the Show.com. Hey, I'm going to go do something productive. I'm going to go watch television.